from New York City. A podcast from working actors, directors, and playwrights. This is the Cry Havoc Company. Hello, and welcome to the Cry Havoc Podcast. Today around the table we have... Jenny Curlin, I'm an actor. Matt Cowart, I'm a director. Jennifer Kerfman, I'm an actor and a director. Jersey Gwizdowski, I'm an actor. Jen Riker, I'm a writer. And Kit Lavoy, I'm a writer and a director. Today, we're doing the fourth part in our series on storytelling moments. We have done episodes about beginnings, about endings, about transitions, and today we're going to be talking about the moments in a play where a character is introduced. Generally, certainly the first moment where we see them in the play, but also potentially including the first minute or two that they're on stage when we are having our first encounter with them as the audience. So we're going to be talking about uh, how actors, writers, and directors think about this kind of moment and what we all do to try to make them as effective parts of the overall story as we can. So let's start off talking about playwriting and how it is that a playwright can think about introducing a character for the first time in a play. What are the things that you generally think about when you're writing? I think it depends on, for me, whether the character is introduced at you know, lights up or whether they're introduced in the middle of the action somewhere. Because a lot of times, you know, depending on where you drop the needle on the story, you can see many characters all at once in your opening moment. And so there's a you have to be very quick with letting people know who everybody is and what they are about, or you you know, you can let that unfold over the first minutes, but in the writing process, I tend to use, you know, I say like how old they are, and I use like two adjectives to describe them, and I may or may not describe something that they're wearing if it's a clue to their character or it's important to the plot, like it's a prop essentially, the a costume piece, and then I say what they're doing. And I think I, I generally do that for characters throughout my plays, especially at the top when we're like introduced to like one right after another. I'll do that for every character, um, unless I want to hide, which I've done this. I want to hide what age they are for later because it's important to the story, or I, you know, I want them to appear mysterious. In which case, that that would be part of the description is like things that are at odds with each other. Um, that you have to figure out what's going on. So in general, that's how I introduce a character at the, the beginning and probably in the middle too. I like, Jan, what you said about, you know, depending on what I want to do, mm-hmm. I'll implement it in a different way. Especially as this is part of a discussion, an ongoing discussion we're having about storytelling, using those character introductions as a tool uh, and a storytelling moment. I think um, in scripts that I or my colleagues or other playwrights have written, the most effective character introductions are always the ones that use the universal quality of like a first impression to achieve something in the story. 
we as you know people, the first impression can be such a powerful thing that holds a lot of weight that we carry with us through our lives. And for those of us that have made great and terrible first impressions, mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. you can you know how powerful they can be. But as a playwright or in uh, other disciplines in the theater, you have the ability to not only control. Uh, at least shape the way that that first impression is made on stage or in on the page, but also the circumstances within which it occurs, which for those of us that have unfortunately made bad first impressions in our lives, sometimes, you know, it's the circumstances around it, unfortunately, <laughs> that that um, that make uh, that impression. Um, but you really have the power to to shape the audience's perception of a character. And I actually think it might break down into two different things, both of which you just spoke about, Jen, which is, how you want your later collaborators, your actors, your director, your designers to meet the character, and then how you want, in and ultimately in the production, the audience to meet the character. So those character descriptions that may happen, you know, um, before the actual script begins or in the stage directions, can be nice breadcrumbs or clues for an actor, for a director, um, or inspiration points, mm-hmm. um, and the staging or the pacing or the point in the story at which they are introduced or what we learn about them before they enter the story can um, shape the way that the audience or the reader meets the character. And I think that's an important and useful distinction to make that once you have written the play, it's out of your hands to a large extent. So so it's incumbent upon you to use the tools at your disposal to not only help your later collaborators meet these characters and to give them a strong starting point, but to shape the story in a way that allows for the audience to meet them. I think that idea of conceiving of these moments as the moment where we meet the character, I think is just such a a useful way of considering things and you can because it really will create the baseline for our experience of that character and it can be you can use that fact in a lot of different ways in terms of you can create the understanding that this is a this is fundamentally who this character is you need to carry that with you through the rest of the play Alternatively, you can create an impression of them that you intentionally want to have set up so you can foil it later on. So you can be surprised that you're actually meeting them at a very uncharacteristic moment for some storytelling reason. Both of those are absolutely useful ways uh, to use the introduction for of a character. Um, I know for myself in terms of actually writing it, it, it's something that I know was drilled into my head by a screenwriting professor in college and does not so much necessarily apply for plays, but I find it useful to hold myself to it as a playwright, which is that idea that you should only write the things that an audience can see. You know, that that idea that if you want to establish that the person is steely, how is the audience going to know that? And, you know, to be able to write that into their introduction, either, you know, what is it that they're doing or how, what is it that they're saying when we meet them? You know, and and I think that that idea, again, to try to make as much as possible the experience of reading a script as close an analog as possible to watching the film or watching the play. What is it that the reader learns about the character that is also a thing that the audience can learn about the character 
in the same way. And, you know, I think it, it creates the opportunity to really tell story through behavior and things like that. Um, but again, I, I think it's just that important thing to, to decide what is it that I want the audience to begin thinking about this character? And what can I do? And we can talk about what we can do to make them think that thing. But again, you can either make them think that thing because it is the thing that is ultimately really fundamentally true about them or because it's something that you want to play with a misfirst impression that the audience has of that character. Actually, I was thinking about that with one of my plays about things that are not readily visible that um, one of my plays, Just Julian, the characters, when they're introduced, I include a description that describes them as, literally describes them as the character from a John Hughes movie, which would not necessarily be readily apparent on, on first look, but I would hope would be the feel of these characters to an audience because I'm setting up a stereotype at the beginning of my play that I'm trying to break or go past. And so even if like people don't know John Hughes when they look at the set, they're seeing those types of characters. And so as a shorthand in my stage directions, I literally described it as John Hughes characters. And I think the important decision to make for yourself as the playwright is what is the important thing that I want to convey about this character mm -hmm. and then how do I want to achieve that? And sometimes it is obliquely. If it is, you know, in, in Just Julie and you're referring to or playing in relationship with a genre and it's important to mm -hmm. encompass that genre and let the, you know, your future collaborators figure that out. Give them a fun problem to solve. If you're George Bernard Shaw, you will write a page and a half in exhausting detail about their wardrobe and their life history and then give your ad director, designers, and actors one hundredth of a second to make that first impression with that page and a half. And that's another exciting challenge. <laughs> um, but I think remembering that it's a, a not only a, um, uh, 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 it's a, it's a, it can be a, it, it should be and, and is useful when it is a functional tool that you can give to the actors to the designers, to the director, and to the audience. And I think the introduction of the character, aside from, you know, the in the stage direction, also includes their first lines of dialogue, the reaction of the characters to their appearance, and any, you know, repetition that might occur with their character that happened with another character. Like, you're setting up this character comes in, does this thing, and says this thing, and the next character comes in and does the same thing, you're setting them up in contrast to each other like these people are the same or how different they did the same thing um and also i mean especially if you if they're coming in in the middle you may have discussed the character before they arrived and then this is their appearance and their chance to fall into or come out of what has been described about them and what people are expecting to see when they meet this person but it is you know it's like when you meet anybody. It's not just their appearance and what they're doing when you meet them, but what you say to them, what they say to you, and then what they do. And there's a lot that you can do, too, with sort of cultural expectations and using those on your side. 
an example that comes to mind from something that I wrote, uh, Good Enough, which I've discussed here, um, in which effectively um, this young woman is staying at her uh, boyfriend's house, her fiance's house over Thanksgiving, having just met the family, and his younger sister comes up and tries to stop the wedding. And it gets very, very complicated between them. But the way that we are introduced to the sister is that she comes into the room, which is her room that she's been displaced from, to retrieve a stuffed animal to sleep with. And I think it does sort of create an expectation of who is this person who gets a stuffed animal, you, you have certain expectations of who that person is that over time you come to realize she certainly is not. And in retrospect, she wasn't really coming here to get the stuffed animal. That's the only reason she could think of to explain why she had shown up when she at first chickens out from saying what she came in to say. But that idea of you know using things that are identifiable in culture that allow us to create a shorthand for the character, either an accurate shorthand or an inaccurate shorthand. But you don't actually have to create a character from whole cloth. You can actually really engage the audience's imagination and history with the world, the way that it functions, to get them to fill in a lot of information for you. It sounds like the common denominator here is relationship, that once you establish a baseline for that character, uh, much in the same way that as an actor, your the the depth of your experience in your track through the play and how you experience um, and deepen your work comes through your scene partner, through your your relationship to your environment, to your other characters, to the world around you. The playwright can and has the opportunity to um, further deepen and specify uh, the character and within that introduction by their relationship to their environment, by their relationship to the other characters in the play. And whether that happens before they're introduced and we set up an expectation like uh, Tartuffe, who we hear about for three acts before we meet him, um, or someone rushes in and then we learn about them over the course of the play if their um, introduction is less than grand um, like Hamlet who we meet early on and then get to know what's going on with him over the course and we, we spend a little bit of time learning about what's happening with Hamlet <laughs> <laughs> but um, the important thing is we are learning about these characters through their relationship to a space to um, an object to a moment to an event and not in a vacuum, which is not something you have to do. You have these other tools at your disposal, and it's not incumbent upon you as the playwright to summon or conjure a character that exists independently of these things. All of the other elements of your play can help you tell that story. And there actually is also something that you can do to sort of harness the audience's desire to create a universe around someone, which is very often, if you begin with a character alone on stage, it very quickly allows the audience to identify with them. Because it they are there, what are they doing, I want to know more about them, someone enters the room, that person is entering their world. 
and that it is something that, again, can just be in terms of creating relationships and what you want the audience's relationship to the characters to be, you can use, again, their storytelling expectations to help them connect to the right characters. Because there is something about the fact that the first things that a person is learning, they are going to give priority over other things that they're learning, unless they're given a very specific reason not to. A large percentage of the information we gain about a character happens in those first couple moments, and it's, yeah, it's hard to trump them. And it's something, I think, for instance, I was thinking about my play uh, Veep, which is about a Republican governor who's approached by the Democrats to run as the vice president on their ticket. And the person he's approached by is a family friend who's a friend of his son's, who they have sent as an emissary so as not to set off any bells uh, because he's somebody who would be appropriate to be over at his house. But it actually was something that I was very careful to give them things to talk about, like how nice it was that he was visiting the older son. And isn't it funny that the younger son now has a girlfriend and that he knew the son when he was too young to think about those sorts of things before they got into the politics. And I really do think that sort of that half page of them talking about family really brands him as the family friend, fundamentally, who is part of this political situation. Where I have a feeling if they talk first about politics and then about the fact that the younger son has a girlfriend now, that would not have packed nearly as much a punch in terms of establishing this person as a family friend as it does have sort of more lasting resonance because it is the very first thing that they do when we meet them. Do you guys have thoughts about the choices that you make in terms of the order in which you introduce the characters? I think part of it can be, like you said, you know, whose world they're entering. You know, if there's a person alone on stage, they're the they're the first person we identify with and we tend to follow them from the beginning to the end. Tend to, you can break that. And if they're appearing simultaneously, it can either be the same thing shortened where like who's the most important person for us to be looking at and then following even if it's this person so and so and so and so and this person so and so and so and so and then we move on with the action or it can be what i want the audience to notice first like what is the what is the key image that launches this these two people who we're meeting at the same time is it how it's their relationship to each other I assume if you're introducing two people at the same time how they relate to each other and I think who I introduce first depends on almost what like in a screenplay what I see first happening and who's doing it and so I would introduce the first person and then the second person that way you are introducing not only a character but a point of view to your audience um, and the order in which those points of view are introduced can affect the way that the story is perceived and uh, of course told as well so whether it's and that can be either um, it can serve any number of functions but it would tend to ally an audience with a particular point of view, 
if we're introduced to it first, if it's the lens through which we're seeing the events of the play unfold, um, or could be a point of view from which we are seeking uh, salvation or release or another um, or a, a, a counterpoint at which time the introduction of another point of view into that play can be incredibly satisfying. And you can build that expectation in either direction by being aware of the audience is going to, for lack of other ways in, experience the events of the play through the characters in the order that they are introduced. Do you guys have any thoughts about the difference of either the challenge or the tools that you have at your disposal when you're introducing multiple characters at once as opposed to when you are introducing only one new character at a time? Well, I think you have less real estate, essentially, to introduce two people at once. Um, if you have to have characters dealing with several new characters, you know, the first characters who were there dealing with several new characters at once, just like in life, you can only put your attention on, you know, who's talking or what, you know, you, you have to split your attention up amongst these new people. So if you need to get something across as the writer, you have to be more succinct and give them sharper things that will leave impressions early on. Whereas if you're just introducing one person, it, it feels like you have your the focus on them and the, their new relationship to whoever was there before and you can like learn about them slowly and it feels less piecemeal so you have more of a challenge when you're introducing multiple people at once because you won't get to know any of them as equally well as you will one person that you can focus on i feel like the only time i've really introduced two characters at once is in a screenplay that I wrote with Kit. It's an animated pigeon screenplay. And I'm thinking of Rufus and Dig, who we introduce as a pair. And I think literally just say Rufus and Dig, two dark gray pigeons. But the idea of them is that they're a pair and they're a team and they're a team of evil pigeons. <laughs> and that's kind of, I mean, we, we learn more about them uh, as they start talking, which they do. Uh, but but it, I think it's important that we did establish them as a pair and, and kind of introduce them together in that way to quickly establish that. Well, there also, I mean, there actually were a number of times in that screenplay where you are introduced to multiple pigeons at one time, mm -hmm. including, uh, and out of the context of the script, this may sound odd, but the first brunch that they all have together. But where you're right. actually introduced to four of the protagonist's closest friends all at the same time. And I mean, I also, I'm very aware, I think, of when you're introducing multiple characters that all of a sudden your tools to do it change because it really is no longer about who is this individual person as much as what is the dynamic of this group and what is the role of each of them in the dynamic of the group. So it's that idea of he arrives at brunch and who is the person who's dominating the conversation, who's embarrassed by the fact that that person's dominating the conversation, who's trying to change the subject, and who's kind of trying to poke a stick at the bear of the person who's dominating the conversation that you can kind of learn 
learn a lot about all of them by setting up how they deal with the dynamic. And, you know, I think, you know, for instance, I'm thinking about Veep uh, again, that there's a situation where you do have sort of the 500-pound gorilla of the big campaign manager guy who comes in. But he also comes in with his associate who becomes very, very important to the story, but it actually seems important to me in terms of establishing who they are, that the associate hangs back and he comes in the room, but sort of what is the thing that finally causes him to speak up? Feels like a very important character-defining thing about him. Um, And also the fact, I mean, sort of in what it sets up is he ends up sort of being in an antagonistic relationship with one of the other people on the campaign. But the thing that causes him to speak up, actually, is to agree with that person that he will ultimately be in conflict with about a matter of strategy. And it sort of sets them up as a parallel in terms of both of them are the ones to whom strategy is most important which then even though the first thing they do is agree with each other about a point of strategy that they both think the other people aren't seeing their investment in strategy will end up being the thing that causes them to be in conflict throughout the play that makes me think that that the entrance and of a character and the introduction of a character can be separate that we can see visually a character without actually meeting them until they introduce themselves into a conversation, especially in those situations where multiple people enter at once, that their actual character introduction is how the group relates to them. And so that might not happen until they begin to speak or step forward. A really good example of that is a play called The Show-Off, where uh, the main character is the show-off. And the first five minutes of the play sets up this family's a hatred of this man because he is so uh, over the top, exaggerated. He has a terrible laugh. We can't believe he's dating our daughter. Uh, and then there's the next five minutes of the play are he's in a room just off stage and we hear him laughing, this annoying laugh, and we hear him telling terrible jokes as they continue to say how much they dislike him. And then finally he come, he bursts into the room and has like a three-page monologue where he goes around the room doing all the things we've heard them talking about. And it is a spectacular way to meet this title character because we've heard so much about him from the point of view of this family and then to see him come into the room and finally be introduced to him through the relationships and the way the the things that they had mentioned his bad laugh his bad jokes all play out over the course of the scene I think is a good example of what you're talking about that's an that's an example of where he's introduced before he enters um what Jenny said about introducing the pair of birds in in uh, in Rufus and Dig, we meet them and then we learn more about them as the events of the script unfold. I'm I'm reminded of any number of plays and screenplays about soldiers, where you meet whether it's you know Macbeth or Stripes, you know, or you meet <laughs> a group of soldiers that identify primarily, especially within the context of this narrative, as soldiers, you know and then distinguish themselves over the course of, of the script or of the screenplay. Or, in some examples, one member of a group that is introduced as a, you know, identifying as a uniform group 
one member of that group distinguishes his or herself over the course of the play, where you find your hero amongst a group. And that can, be, again, be a very useful storytelling tool. Uh, let's talk uh, a bit about directing and uh, how it is that a uh, director thinks about introducing characters. Uh, one thing that uh, was said before when we were talking about playwriting uh, that is, I think, a useful place that I always start to think about things is the idea of a first impression. And what is the first impression you want this character to have on the audience, whether they're walking through the door or lights up uh, and we discover them on stage? And there's a kind of couple ways to come at that, which is I always think about, you know, what is the character's arc and journey through the story? And I like to think about the first moment we meet them by identifying what is the last, what is their last moment in the play? And where do they end up? And where do we want to start that gives that the most possible amount of journey for the character? So in thinking about you know what is this first impression i'll often start by going well where does the play end up where does this what does this person have to you know overcome or do to change over the course of the story uh, and how can we start them as far away from that as possible mm-hmm. i totally agree and it actually is something that i try to set as a challenge for myself as a director to as we're introduced to a character that they are doing something they could not possibly be doing at the end of the play And as we've already mentioned today, often the playwright will set you up with that entrance, that behavior, that relationship in order to establish that first impression. But sometimes they don't and it becomes incumbent on the director to make those decisions within the context of a given production. And I think even when they do give you that. It is your responsibility as the director to embellish upon it. You know, that there is this, they're working at their desk is what the playwright will write. But where is the desk in the room? What are they working on? Are they staring distractedly and then going to work? Or are they furiously writing on a pad as the lights come up? You know, that there still is, you know, this whole additional layer of information that has to exist when a play is existing in three dimensions on a stage that does not have to uh, and probably should not exist when the play is existing on the page when you're sort of giving the fundamental information of storytelling. So there are a lot of decisions for a director and the actors to make and in collaboration with the playwright often in in the first production to make those decisions about how those moments that existed in two dimensions on the page become three-dimensional. Absolutely, and uh, like, like you were saying, Kit, it's the director's job to embellish upon those things. And so, you know, when asking myself, you know, what is the first impression that the play provides, or what, how, do, how do I want to shape the audience's opinion of this person in a single moment? So I find it useful to think about it not as, sure, you'll have a whole scene to learn about this person, but you meet someone in a snapshot and what are the things that we can learn from that snapshot? And for me, I think about, you know, what is their appearance? Which is very literally, you know, the clothes they're wearing and how are they disheveled? Are they put together? And all of the, you know, are they high class? Are they low class? Uh, all the things that come into that. And also, as you were saying, what are they doing? Are they furiously w- working at a pad? Are they just staring off into the sky and the phone rings? And then they try and answer it, dis- you know, uh, there's a myriad of choices that give us a wealth of information in a single moment about who a person is or 
who we are supposed to think a person is uh, at the beginning of our meeting them. And, you know, one thing you were talking about, Kit, uh, in, uh, in playwriting is the idea of cultural identifiers that we can use to help an audience zero in on who we want them to think this character is. And uh, as a director, you know, using stereotype and archetype to the advantage uh, of the storytelling of a play. It is uh, a wonderful resource to know that an audience is coming in with certain preconceived notions about the way certain people are or behave, and you can absolutely use that uh, to quickly communicate a lot to an audience in a very short amount of time. There's a great story about when they were on the road with Guys and Dolls, and they had this huge exposition scene where they were introducing the character of Sarah, who they wanted to set up as this very chaste, uh, proper woman who uh, had a very strict moral code. And uh, they were looking for cuts. So instead of having this long scene of exposition where we learned about her values, she simply entered in a Salvation Army costume, and that was it. We instantly knew everything we needed to know about her being a missionary and a person of the church, uh, and she was instantly the perfect foil to Sky Masterson. So they didn't need a lot of talking to establish those things, they just set it up in a single moment. And that again comes from relationship, that that um, Salvation Army costume doesn't have any value in a vacuum. It has value in relationship to where she is and who she's surrounded by. I also think that there's a lot that you can do with where the character is physically on stage that creates an impression, that there is something about this person who enters from up-center and crosses down-center. It reads of power. It reads of control. It reads that that is something, which is odd, because you could totally turn it the stage to the side and the character could do exactly the same thing which is open the door and walk straight across the stage but it doesn't have the same effect because of the way that we understand stagecraft to work and subconsciously the way audiences expect things to happen there's also the idea of the way that we read a stage left to right which i've always wondered in like you know in israel is it the flip, I don't know. But that idea of a character who's on the the audience's left side on stage right of the stage will read as having much more potential energy as someone who's about to act and someone who's all the way to the audience's right or stage left has a much more solid feeling about them because the audience reads the stage across like they read a page and are ready to stop when they arrive all the way to the right side of the stage. So there are things that you can do with that and the relative heights of characters or even just relative to the stage in terms of either literal height of the person, but I was thinking more in terms of whether they are up on a high level or something like that, that there is a lot that you can do. And I, I am thinking back and it's not something that was I'm not sure ever conscious, but I feel like every Shakespeare play I've ever directed, when the king or the prince or whomever was introduced, they were up on a higher level looking down at people. That there is just something about that sort of a thing that the audience reads 
certain things into physical relationships and that's something that you can use throughout a play but can be very important in terms of where you choose to place them when we first meet them. And not only in terms of how you what you're going to learn about the character or the relationship between the other characters like this is a king compared to, you know, other people but also about the space that you're in and about the world that you're in. You can really use that movement of the of the character in space to help tell the story of the space. I think it still comes back to relationship, you know, not only relationship to the environment, to the other characters, but relationship to the audience, hmm. um, which is a very powerful one and is in many ways the primary relationship <laughs> of, of, the, of the event of seeing a play. And the, you know, in a thrilling uh, in character introduction, introducing a king in a Shakespearean play that I saw recently, had the flourish and the expectation was that King Lear was going to enter where you expect the king to enter and instead he wandered through the back of the house and nobody knew he'd arrived and sort of joined the procession waiting for whoever it was supposed to enter to enter. Mm. And um, it was uh, a, a, in relationship to those expectations and to what we expected as the audience, again, those cultural signifiers and those theater going signifiers that are also cultural, you can play against them. And it all comes back down to those relationships. Yeah, and I mean, actually, that goes back to what we were talking about with playwriting, too, is really what we're talking about is the introduction to the character. But you do have the same option as the director that you do as the playwright, which is to misdirect with the way that you're introducing the character, which is what you were saying, which is always fun and interesting. And things, additionally, about the physical relationships, like whether the character is facing the audience or not when we meet them. It can be a very strong thing. You lights up and there's a character looking out the window facing away from us, which I think I'm, I'm pretty sure actually in the uh, Rafe Fiennes Hamlet they did on Broadway a few years ago, that's how you met Hamlet, was he was this big, huge, beautiful window and he was silhouetted against it looking outside. But there's this sense of like, who is that guy? Like, I know it's Hamlet. I know, I know that's what I showed up for. But there is sort of this sense of that I'm not being fed who he is that it makes me as the audience have to lean in and, 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 and be prepared to investigate this person. And it really is amazing how much that very first baseline impression that you make really stays with you and informs everything else that happens throughout the whole play. It's the thing that we talked about actually in the episode a few episodes ago in the series about beginnings, but that idea that the first the beginning of a play the first two or three minutes of a play is the moment where the audience will believe you and they will believe everything that you have to say because they have nothing to counteract it it's whatever you tell them they will accept as being uh what is true about this world and about this production and the same thing is true about that first moment where you meet a character that we will accept it you can again turn it on itself where you realize oh i unfairly judge that character or I over-generously judge that character. And again, that provides an opportunity to really implicate the audience and to make them think about the way that they were thinking about things when you're able to do that. But again, certainly, that first moment and minute of stage time that we see them will create a, an impression that will inform everything else that comes after it. I was just thinking if there were any moments that I had written in that had the physical relationship written into the script that wasn't established and there is a play that I wrote just Julian where the the character we meet first Madison is lying face down on a bed in a prom dress 
and it's like you don't you know it's defeat but like glitz you know and and then i think the the first action of the play is that a rock flies through the window and hits her in the ass and so it's like more downtrodden <laughs> than the first moment like she can't just even like lay on her bed and <laughs> and be defeated in peace she's going to get hit with a rock also so yeah i i think i had this you know the the juxtaposition of like her what she was wearing and what she looked like with her physical position i actually remember a production that i directed several years ago and it was just a little thing that was a choice about the opening of the play but that like every review of the play mentioned it and it it, it startled me but it was sunday on the rocks which we've talked about before the teresa rebeck play but it was it was a thing where the opening tableau of the play which was the introduction to the character was that the lights came up in a very nicely appointed well-kept living room but there was at the dining table that was uh, on the stage there was a woman sitting there drinking and she had one chair tipped over and her feet up on the chair and there was that idea of this woman was causing trouble in this place and you know that, that again the number of people that mentioned that from the moment the lights came up you knew this woman was trouble which she wasn't moving. She was having a drink. But there was something about the fact that she had turned over and put her feet up on one chair that, again, created what was a, a lasting impression. In that case, I mean, I like that initial picture, but that was actually something where I learned in a lot of ways how much that initial introduction of a character can carry through because I did not realize what an impression that was going to have. So I've been much more careful since then <laughs> about what that initial image is of, 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 of the protagonist. The introductions of characters also, they compound, right? There's a different quality to the first character we meet, mm. to, the, to the last character we meet. It makes me think of, it's a film, but it makes me think of Jaws. Which, if you don't know the work of this filmmaker, Steven Spielberg, <laughs> he's really a... He's going places, <laughs> but the you know when you meet the chief, it's in relate. You, well, the first thing you meet is you, know, uh, you see the skinny dipping girl get killed, and then we meet the chief in over his head who hates the water and can't deal with all the problems that are happening in the town, right? And you immediately have that relationship. But once that's established, every other introduction is in relationship to that. You meet the scientist who has no idea where he is or what he's doing, but knows the the shark so well. And then when you meet the old salty sea captain, he interrupts the town meeting and drags his fingers across the chalkboard. But it's after we've already established, you know, they compound on each other, the way you build that. And the final introduction in the movie is the darn shark, which we've been waiting for, like for three acts, like Tartuffe, to meet. Um, and when you do... It's satisfying and you learn and it's satisfying because we've been introduced and have impressions about the other three guys on the boat. Mm -hmm. And it's their reactions to that event of meeting that shark at the end that are earned because of the ways in which they've been introduced. But character introductions really compound and are in relationship to the ones that have come before them. And I think actually that's something that can be a really powerful thing for a director in terms of shaping what they want the audience to take away and what the audience they want the audience to be focusing on is the patterns in the ways that you choose to introduce your character. That 
you can have, if you really want the audience to be focusing on one specific character, you can find the ways in which every character is introduced very much in relation to that character. You also can, if you want to talk about that this is a play about the way people have difficulty connecting to each other because they're too tied up in their work. Well, that can be a thing that every single time we meet a character, they're either at their desk or on their, you know, uh, iPad working or whatever it is they're doing, but that our first introduction to them is in, is, is in relationship to their work or to their family or to, again, a specific character or to the location where they are or whatever it is. But that, that that's the sort of pattern because, again, these character introductions, even though the audience might not be consciously aware of it are a discrete kind of moment and if each of those discrete kinds of moments has some commonality the audience will subconsciously pick up on that pattern as something important another thing as a director you sometimes have to take into account is if you have a a star playing a playing a character in your show and then it's not only about introducing the character but also about introducing the person whose name is above the title onto the stage uh, and allowing the audience the moment that they will want to take to applaud or celebrate their being able to see that person live in front of them. Um, And I think a wonderful example of of that being executed uh, very well was uh, the the revival of One Ten in the Shade on Broadway where Audra McDonald was playing Lizzie. And uh, the director, Lonnie Price, made the choice. There's this number, Lizzie's Coming Home, where her family is singing about her arrival, uh, and then she arrives in the next scene. And uh, the, the, the song Lizzie's Coming Home traditionally takes place at the train station, but Lonnie ch- chose to make it about the boys prepping the home for her return. So they were cleaning up all the dirty dishes and tidying the mess, and on the button of the number, Instead of just allowing the number to finish and for the audience to applaud the number, on the button, over the course of the number, the house had been forming around the boys as the, as the scenery flew in. And on the button of the number, the house finally came together and Audra McDonald burst onto the stage, which allowed us A, to applaud the musical number, but B, give a huge hand to this star that we had been anticipating uh, her arrival so greatly. And so A, it served as a wonderful introduction to the characters of the men. We got to see how their life was in disarray without her. And this number building up to her arrival, which was a wonderful way to introduce the character while simultaneously giving the audience the ability to applaud Audra's entrance without stopping the play. And so that's often the way the, the, the takeaway from that for me was how can you get the star on stage, allow the audience to applaud the star, but not stop the storytelling of what's happening on stage? Um, and your example of the Rafe Finds Hamlet, I think, is a wonderful example of that being done successfully, where he's there, he's looking out, but we're not giving him to the audience until we've had a chance for him to choose when he wants us to see him or whenever he and the director decided to do it together Mm -hmm. uh, is another great example of how that that was not stopping the play but making me sit forward and wonder when do I get to see him, when do I get to see him? I saw such an interesting example lately of the reason why it's important to do that which was I saw the Much Ado About Nothing in Central Park, the public Shakespeare in the Park this summer and Pedro Pascal played Don John who was played the Red Viper in Game of Thrones. And the week that I saw it, 
happen to be for the people who've watched Game of Thrones and who have not, I will not ruin it, but the big moment for that character had happened three days before I saw this production. And so all of a sudden, that week, he was one of the most famous actors in America for that week. But they didn't build a star entrance for him because he was he's a very well-reputed, reasonably well-known actor, but was not a star. And so all of a sudden, he like walks on stage and you could feel the audience want to do something about it. But there was no mechanism. That just the scene started, and you actually could feel. I certainly did. A moment was like, oh, it's the oh, it's that. Oh shoot, he's talking. Okay, he's talking. Quiet, you know. And it's it's um, it just is something that, that is just a reality of when you are able to work with a star, which is a great thing to be able to do. But yeah, that is uh, just one of those things you have to consider. It's like gravity; it is going to affect what is happening, mm-hmm. and you can't ignore it. Uh, we actually just saw Idina Menzel in If Then, and she has become a huge star recently with Frozen, and she's known, obviously, through Wicked and Rent and Glee, um, and they have so successfully built in her entrance into the beginning of the play. For one, she's raised, she's up high. She walks on kind of in the dark, and basically there's a spotlight on her face for the first lines of the play, uh, the musical, and the first lines are, hi, it's me, because she's talking on the phone. And then there's a moment where everyone, you know, a long moment, (laughs) where everyone can applaud her. She's wrecking, you know, it's recognizably her, she's announced that she's here, it's her, and we can all applaud. Do you guys have any thoughts about how you might treat an entrance differently when it is the star role in the play, even if the person who is playing it is not necessarily a name star? Do you treat that differently than uh, you might other entrances? Well, something I find useful to think about is in thinking of, you know, like the title character of the play or the person that the story revolves around. Even if they're not, even if the actor playing the role isn't famous, in the context of the story, they are the gravity. They have that same weight that a star would have. So I always think about it like, well, if Tom Cruise was playing this role, how would I want Tom Cruise to enter the stage? You know, if it was Brad Pitt, if it was, you know, Angelina Jolie, you know, what what kind of entrance would I craft for them? So then, uh, even though when the actor enters, they won't have uh, the same impact that those people would have if they came on the stage, it still feels just as important to the context of the play, uh, and I think is a is an interesting opportunity for a director in terms of how they're crafting the way a character enters the the show. And just I know for myself, giving it those stakes of I have to give you know George Clooney a great entrance uh, just challenges my mind to think of exciting ways to bring that character on stage. And I also think it's just something to recognize that I feel like doesn't get recognized enough. But that idea that audiences, it is something that we have talked about in terms of, I talk about with actors all the time, that, you know, actors do want to be liked. They, they, they want to be liked. It is a thing that is true of actors. There is nothing wrong about that. But I think a lot of times it actually gets actors in trouble because they're busy trying to be nice 
in a scene, for example, so people will like them. But the thing that an audience actually likes about a character is them trying to do something is watching someone care about something and trying to make it happen. It's why Iago is such a fantastic character. He's not doing nice things, but he's trying so hard that it's hard not to identify with him in some way and even kind of root for him to get what he wants in certain productions, depending on how he's going about it and how uh, Othello's going about it. But I, I do find that that's a really useful thing to think about when you want the audience to grab on to a character from the beginning is that idea of really being sure that we meet them when they are doing something that is in some way reflective of this thing that they really want from the world. You're much more likely to, you know, like a character who's sitting at their typewriter tapping away as the lights come up than someone whose chin is on their hands and they're staring plaintively at the typewriter. You're a lot more likely to immediately want to go on the journey with the person who's doing something about their problem from the moment we meet them than someone who's stuck. There are counterexamples of that, to be sure, but I think it's a useful rule of thumb. What about for actors? Do you think about your character's introduction differently than you do other parts of a play? I think um, maybe a little bit. I, th I think this is very similar from an acting perspective to what we talked about, about beginnings in that episode, because even though I'm not, as a, technically as an actor, I'm aware that this is the introduction of my character and that that has some responsibility in telling the story to the audience, it's not really the primary thing that I'm thinking about. Um, I am thinking about things like, where am I coming from? What am I bringing into this moment? What am I trying to do when I get here? And, and also trying to make sure that I'm not playing the end of the play. So I think, yeah, I, I do think that I'm approaching the introduction of my own character um, a little bit differently. I do think, though, on the other side of it, that I might be a little bit more aware of what my storytelling responsibility is in a bigger picture way when another character is introduced while I'm on stage. To me, that, I think, has a little bit of a different approach. I think that there's something in, you know, we've been talking a lot about relationships, and I think that my awareness of whatever my response is to a new character is not only based on what my character needs from that person, but also that I have a little bit of a responsibility of establishing whatever it is that we're needing to establish about the dynamic between the two characters or the, you know, the physical space can play, you know, can play a part in it or whatever that is. But yeah, I do think that there's, there is a, a different set of opportunities to the introduction of my own character or other characters when I'm working. I would I totally agree with that and uh, the best thing you can do to help your character introduction is do your work as an actor to build over the course of the rehearsal process and performances a living on stage realized active truthful character by doing your work and I think it comes back to work and then and you know craft versus technique that once you get to a certain point the technique of the awareness you have of it being your character introduction can help shape the craft that you put in the work that you put in but ultimately that responsibility does lie with the playwright and the director you can bring something to the party you know you can bring something to the table 
and to help bring options in and bring choices in as you should for every moment and every scene um, and to have a strong to have been, to have done the work that there is something to shape that there is a character to introduce uh, is, is an incredibly helpful thing that you can do you can also as Jen said help your colleagues when they enter because again the introduction of a character is defined by relationship and uh, you can help another character have their introduction and help the audience's understanding of it and the director's shaping of it by filling that character introduction with a strong sense of what that relationship is. Um, you're responsible as an actor for living and putting it maybe from 2D with the playwright to 3D with the director into four dimensions in the living of it with you're responsible for an element of every character introduction that happens while you're on stage and once those things are set in at a certain point in the process you can really fill them and bring them to life although I always find it fun to bring in choices and if I can find a way to have my back to the audience in my introduction mm -hmm. or pop in through a door or you know it is a fun thing to be aware of because it's true that's a first a first impression much like it is in life will dictate the baseline through which an audience or the other characters in the play will experience um, this character so to bring in options and choices of what that can be is a fun part of the process for me and I think something that Matt was talking about in, in directing about the um, what where does the character have to end up and so where therefore should the character start I think is something else that you know that, that plays into that for me what is it what I want to bring all of my tools that I'm going to need for the whole show in my pockets when I, I come in for that entrance and so what are the things that I need to have primed myself for um, when I'm first introduced or entering um, so that I, I have everything available to me to take the journey of the play it is interesting because I feel like when we've gotten to this part of the discussion and the other episodes, sort of my feeling has generally been as a director, I try to encourage the actors not to think about it differently. You do your work on the moment. But I actually think there's, I'm finding myself, and especially listening to you guys, thinking that introductions of characters are a little bit different and sort of different in the way that a moment of stage combat is different. That if you let people have a fight on stage the way they fight in real life, the audience wouldn't be able to follow it. It's just a lot of thrashing and moving and, you know, punches inside that the audience couldn't see, that you need to be able to give it enough air to understand that this person is winding up, this person is dodging their punch, that sort of a thing. And I feel like in a well-constructed introduction to a character, there's a lot of information that we're getting. And it actually is something to be slightly more aware of as an actor that the way I'm carrying this bag, the fact that I still have this thing tucked under my arm when I put the box down and only then go over to the window, that some of those choices are ones that are being made that are going to establish a lot of things about your character, that once we've understood who you are as a character, begun to, some of those things can sort of bleed into each other in a more organic way. And you certainly want to be organic in your introduction, but it is something to be aware of making sure that the important storytelling points are being seen by the audience. Because again, 
as we were talking about with all of the other things, this initial impression of who you are, whether it is a true impression or a false impression, but is going to freight everything that comes after it with this initial baseline impression of who your character is. So again, that idea of there are there are potentially as an as an actor more moments to execute. Because you know in every scene, you know, there's the thing is like, oh, be sure we see you're putting the newspaper on that table. You know, there are things like that because it's going to become important later. And there's a degree to which everything that happens in that first 30 seconds you're on stage is something that is going to become important later, even if it isn't directly called back upon. That's why I think it's important to make that distinction between the technique and the work. But it's no less truthful. Again, the relationship between the play and the audience is in many ways the primary relationship of the event of the play. So as truthful or as organic or as living the moment as the work is, if it's happening, you know, backstage, we can't see it. If it's happening huddled in the corner, turned upstage, unless that's the choice we've decided to make, we're, we, the, we as the audience don't have the opportunity to participate in that story with you. So the technique things, whether they come from the way the playwright structures the play, the way the director shapes it, and then the way you as the actor embody it, are the opportunity to let the audience in, who paid good money for tickets, you know, into what's going on with, with the wonderful work that you're doing. Um, and it reminds me of a great um, quote from Harold Klerman, what's more truthful than an actor relating to an audience? The untruthful thing is pretending that there's actually a fourth wall there, ultimately. That you are aware that you are doing this for people to watch. And part of the um, craft of it, which is why we have these discussions, is to let people into that process, much like a moment of combat, to embody and fill those moments and to track that story. I think that's a good place to wrap up. If you'd like to learn more about the Cry Havoc Company, our public events, our educational services, our free early career seminars, and how you can support the work of the company, including this podcast, go to www.cryhavoccompany.org. You can follow us on Twitter at Cry Havoc NYC, or you can find us on Facebook as the Cry Havoc Company. You can subscribe to the podcast in the iTunes store, and while you're there, please write us a review and give us a rating. It helps other people find the podcast. So for myself, Jen, Jersey, Jen, Matt, and Jenny, and everyone at the Cry Havoc Company, thanks for listening, and we'll talk to you soon. You can learn more about the Cry Havoc Company at cryhavoccompany.org. Questions or comments can be sent to podcasts at cryhavoccompany.org. All music from this show came from the Podsafe Music Network at music.podshow.com. Thanks for listening, and please subscribe.